Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. system go over kind of where we're at in this story because we began about seven weeks ago. We began in Genesis 37. And if you remember, the whole story began with this very large family and this very large family had sin in it. It had dysfunction in it. But we have seen over the last several weeks that um, God's bigger than all of that. God is sovereign, right? He's bigger than sin. He's bigger than sinners. He's bigger than dysfunction and in his providence we have seen the hand of God working both in seen and unseen ways to cause everything to work out for his glory and for our ultimate joy. But the story began really kind of in kind of in a bad way. It began with Joseph being beat by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers and then his brothers sold him into slavery, into Egypt. And, and now we've seen 20-plus uh, years have passed, and we're getting to, um, to our section um, today, Genesis 44. And, and we're going to see that God is not done with all that he's been doing so far. I mean, he's been working in the heart of Joseph, and he's been working in the heart of his brothers, but he's not done God's not done. And, and, and as I've read this and I thought on it and that whole thing, God's not done. God's not done. He's not done in this story. And by the grace of God, he's not done here yet either. The story has yet to be completed. We've got a picture. Jesus will return, but he's not done. He's not done in your life. He's not done in my life. In our passage today, he's not done with this family. Last week, the brothers, they had come a long ways. We saw through the severity of circumstance of the famine, and we saw through um, grace, the grace of, of Joseph and the grace of God, that for the first time they confessed their sin to one another. And that's a, that's a tremendous thing. But just because you confess your sin doesn't mean you repent of them. Um, let me say it like this. So, so you can confess your sin. You can say, yeah, I sinned. I, I did it. You can say, I'm guilty. I feel guilty. I feel bad about what I've done, right? You can say all those things, and that's good. But that is not repentance, and and these brothers have yet to repent. But in chapter 44, as we're going to walk through it today, we're going to see God do in his grace and his goodness, because he's bigger than all of this, we're going to see a life-altering transformation of these brothers. And here's the beautiful thing. It's wrapped up in love, but as we're going to be concluding today, we're going to see it all points to Jesus. And by the way, I say this as often as I can, it's all about Jesus. The whole Bible's about Jesus. Every word is about Jesus. It, Jesus, it points to him. We're going to see that today. So real quickly, before we get to chapter 44, let me briefly do a review of chapter 43. Here's what happened in chapter 43. Chapter 43, Joseph and his brothers, no, Joseph's brothers, they return from Canaan, but this time they have their youngest brother, Benjamin, with them. If you remember last week, Joseph said, I'm going going to keep Simeon here, and I want you to go back to Canaan, I want you to go back to Hebron, I want you to get Benjamin, I want you to come back with Benjamin to prove to me that you are indeed who you claim to be. 
So they did all that. They come back, and then Joseph receives them really graciously. He receives them graciously, and they have this big party. They have this large meal. They feast all night long. Now, under the sovereignty of God, under the direction of God, Joseph is going to test his brothers one final time, and we're going to get to repentance. We're going to see this. What Joseph is going to do is he is going to put his brothers in the exact situation that they were in 20 years earlier when they sold him into slavery. The question is going to be, are these men different? Are they different? Have they truly changed? And it all begins in chapter 44 when Joseph conspires against his brothers. That's how we're going to begin. Joseph is going to conspire against his brothers. So you got chapter 43, and these guys just had a massive celebration, really. They, they ate too much, and they drunk to excess. And so while the brothers are sleeping, Joseph and his steward, that's the man he's placed over his house, they set up a plan. They have a set-up plan. Let's look at it, the setup plan. Let's get in it. Verse 1, they're, <laughs> who doesn't love a good plan? They're going to conspire. Here they go. Then he, that's Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. That's going to be Benjamin with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So the steward does all of this. While they're sleeping, they make this plan. And quite honestly, you read this, you're like, man, this this seems kind of suspicious, right? It seems kind of strange. And it is a little bit strange, but I want to pull out one thing here. I want you to notice this silver cup. We're going to be talking about it in other places today. But I want you to notice the silver cup. Now, a silver cup, it was valuable, to be sure. A silver cup is valuable. But this silver cup represents something greater than money. I don't know if you remember, but in, in, in Genesis 37, when they sold Joseph into slavery, they had received 20 pieces of silver. It's a setup, man. It's a setup. The question now will be, is their love for God greater than their love of silver? Have these men changed. Verse 3, sun comes up. Verse 3, as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. We'll stop there. So the morning comes, these brothers wake up, they kind of saddle their donkeys, and they head off to Hebron, Hebron, head off to Canaan, and they're relieved. Now imagine they were happy, were headed home They had had dinner with the second most powerful man in the world. Now they had grain just bulging out of their sacks, and they had all of this. They had their brother Simeon back with them. In addition, young Benjamin was unharmed. Their plan could not have gone smoother. When I was reading this and studying this, I thought about this. I, I don't know if any of you ever watched um, that 80s TV show, The A-Team. Did, is there any A-Team watchers? There's a few of them, right? And there was a guy, Hannibal, and when everything came together, he would say, what, I love it when a plan comes together. And I imagine that's these men. That's these men. Everything worked out. 
Like, we're heading home. We got everything. We got our brothers. We're all heading home. Everything worked out perfectly. But Joseph had other plans. Let's continue. Now, Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from the, this that my Lord drinks? He was referring to the silver cup. And by this that he practiced divination, you have done evil in doing this. Now, real quick, I do want to point out something here. We're not going to get into this, but I want you to understand. Um, it says divination. Listen, Joseph did not practice divination. He didn't, all right? There's many reasons why I say that. He's not a man who does that. There's other reasons we could get into. But I think the point is this. The silver cup that was in the house of a pagan Egyptian was very valuable. It was worth a lot of money. So this is meant to add a gravity to the accusation. It's not just any silver cup. It's the house cup that we practice this worship of divination and stuff like that. So, so that's the setup plan. All right, we got it. We got it. He's going to get these guys. Let's move on, get into verse 6, and we're going to see the capture made. The capture made. So Ju- Joseph's steward coolly carries out his master's orders. He's going to gather the military men. He's going to have these nice chariots and all this, and they're going to go out rapidly, catch up to the, the Canaanites, the, the, the Hebrew men who, who are on their donkeys. They're going to catch them. Look at verse 6. When he overtook them, that's the steward, he spoke them these words. So he's going to repeat exactly what Joseph had told him to say, okay? And you can kind of get the picture, kind of the desert of Egypt, verse 7. They said to him, so he said all that. They're going to say back to him. That's the brothers. Why does my Lord speak such words as these? And they're shocked. They're shocked. Far be it from your service to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Now, that had happened earlier. They returned stuff. How then could we steal silver or gold from the Lord's house? Excellent logic. It is. Like, like, like remember, we're honest men. We return things that we believed had been stolen. Why in the world would we come to you, hang out with you, only to steal from you? Mr. Stewart, you have it all wrong. It's offensive to even hear this. In fact, the brothers are so confident in their innocence that they volunteer. They volunteer for an extreme punishment. (laughs) These guys don't know when to leave well enough alone, but they're just going to volunteer something really extreme. Verse 9, here's what they say in their righteous indignation. Whichever of your servants, he's referring to the brothers, is found with it, that's the silver cup, shall die. Come on, guys. And we also will be my Lord's servants. Now, these, these dudes, they do nothing halfway. They, they don't. They often have a tendency to speak before they think. This is harsh. Hey, if, hey Stuart, Mr. Stewart, I'll tell you what. You find the cup, the silver cup, you kill that man. And you can take us all as your slaves. Here's how the steward responds, verse 10. Now, remember, the steward knows the cups in Benjamin's bag. So he kind of lessens the penalty. He says this. He said, verse 19, let it be as you say. Now he's going to change it slightly, make it less severe. He who is found with it, that's the silver cup, shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. All right, so he changes the deal. Now, he knows, he knows the silver cup is there. 
Like he knows it. He placed it in there. Saying, there's no need for anyone to die. We don't need all of you to be slaves. We just need Benjamin. And by the way, that's Joseph's plan. He wants Benjamin, and he wants to test his brothers. So we get to verse 11, and we're going to see the cup found. The cup's going to be found. So the search proceeds. We're giving details here. It's really, you can picture it in your mind. Check it out, verse 11. Then each man, that's every brother, quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and that's the sack with all the grain. And each man opened his sack, and he, that's the steward, searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. Okay, okay, so the setup is here. You've got the oldest all the way to the youngest. They've got their sack, and it's opened. So the steward would have went to Reuben first, looked in it. He knows it's not there, but he's, he's going to look at it. And I imagine Reuben would have been just proud and angry at the steward when he did not find it. I told you it wasn't there. I told you it wasn't there. So he goes to the next bag. That's Simeon's. He opens up Simeon's, nothing. He goes to Levi, nothing. Judah, Dan, Gad, on and and on and on. And every one of them is completely empty. They all pass the test. There is no silver cup to be found. And I'm quite certain the brothers might have started mummering among themselves. Maybe they were even making fun of the steward, right? We told you it was not here. How dare you accuse us? But there's one bag left. Little, the youngest, Benjamin. And look at verse 12, the last half. He gets to Benjamin, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. In a horrifying moment, that steward reached in there, grabbed the cup, and lifted it. And I imagine the morning sun hit that cup, and it shone brightly. What are they going to do? It doesn't say that they said anything. I don't know, but we can see how they respond to this. Verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Now, here's something I want us to notice as this story is, is building up. There's something subtle that has occurred. Something that we might miss, but we should not, we, we, we ought not. I, I've discovered in Scripture that oftentimes, and even in life, it's the subtle things that let you know the hearts of people. But back in Genesis 37, when Joseph's father was presented with the evidence that Joseph had been killed, the boys, the brothers, brought it to, to Joseph's father, Jacob, the only person who tore his clothes was Jacob, the father. The ten boys could care less. They did not mourn. They were not upset. But yeah, there's something different. Something different. Something different coming from the text. It says every single one of the boys now tear their clothes. They are mourning. They are upset. It is troubling them. Could it be that God is softening their hearts? question now becomes, what are they going to do? Will they abandon their father's favorite son as they had Joseph 20 years early? We move on to verse 14, kind of a scene shift, and we're going to see Joseph confronts his brothers. Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. Of course he was. He set this whole thing up. 
Notice, they fell before him to the ground. I want us to pay very careful attention to this. Notice they bow before him. I want you to notice they bow before him. It says they fell before him. That is extreme bowing. Now, if you remember week number one, chapter 37, Genesis, Joseph had a dream, and in his dream, he had a dream that his brothers would bow before him. Now we see this is the third time the third time that they have bowed before him. And every time the scripture shows them bowing before Joseph, they're getting lower and lower and lower. Check this out. Chapter 42, it says, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him, their face to the ground. That's the first time. Brow to the ground. In the Hebrew, it's this, this is part of your, your, your face on the ground. Next, Genesis 43, it says they bowed their heads, and then it says and prostrated themselves, okay? So that's a laying down, all right? This is the third time, chapter 44, it says they fell, they fell. They're sprawling out before him on the ground. They're getting as low as they can. Each time they meet him in Scripture, they're getting lower and lower. Church, this is demonstrating to us the fulfillment of Joseph's dream, And I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to miss this. Scripture is going out of its way to show us, to tell us, to teach us, to demonstrate for us that God is faithful to his word. If God says it will be done, then it will be done. It will be accomplished. I don't know, man. 20 years, 20 plus years has passed since God gave him that dream And it's actually coming true. And I guarantee you there were times in Joseph's life, I mean, he was a slave, he was in jail, and there were times when, by all indications, it would have been impossible to think that my brothers are going to bow before me. I don't know if Joseph ever thought that. I am certain that I might have doubted it. But what I want us to see, church, and what I want us to take home, and what I want us to know is God's promises are not contingent upon your circumstances. And God's promises are not contingent upon how you feel. God's promises are not contingent upon who's in charge. God's promises are rooted in his character, and he is faithful. So we need not lose heart. We need not lose heart as God's people if he's saved us. He is faithful. If he said it, it will come to pass and some will say and some have said and some will come to me and they'll meet with me and say well I don't feel like that is going true I don't feel man what that doesn't feelings have nothing to do with it It has everything to do with God one of my favorite promises in the Bible I was just reading it this week and I just want to share this with you if you can write it down because I find great comfort in this Psalms 138.8 Here's what it says. The Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's sovereign. He's working. He's moving. He will be glorified. He will be glorified. And that's what it's showing us, okay? Now his brothers are groveling before him. Joseph is going to maintain his stern pagan persona. Verse 15, here's what he said. Joseph says to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? So he's keeping up his act. 
Now, his brothers have no doubt that he's got power. They got, he's the number two man in Egypt. So these guys are in a bad situation. They are in a very bad situation. There's absolutely, absolutely nothing they can do. They are in despair. And here's where things start getting crazy, man. Judah steps up. And we're going to see that they admit their guilt. Now, remember, they've already admitted their guilt to one another, I mean, when they were in prison. But now they're going to admit their guilt out loud to Joseph. Judah steps up. Here's what he says. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup, that's the silver cup, has been found. And this is astounding. Judah becomes the spokesman for the brothers, and he says, You're right. We are indeed guilty men. Now, we're not guilty of stealing this silver cup, but we are indeed guilty of a great many things. And they understood. They understood it wasn't Joseph that found them out. It says, they said, God has found out our guilt. And I would say, this is a position that every Christian has been in or can identify with. That moment when God in his grace and God in his mercy makes you aware of your sin and makes you aware of his holiness. I remember, church, I remember when God made me aware of my sin. And I was in this same position. It was hard. It was difficult. And I cry out, God, you're right. I I am a sinner. I've sinned against you my whole life. And you're holy. What can I do? What can I do? And I'm, I was in this position before a living, holy God. And I pray if you haven't been there that God will place you there. Because there's only one thing to get out. And that's to hear the gospel, to repent and respond and believe. Now, Joseph's going to talk to them. They're going to receive the verdict. What's the verdict? But he, that's what Joseph said. And Joseph can be hard, man. Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup, the silver cup was found, shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. To their surprise, Joseph says, no, 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 no. I just want Benjamin. I'm letting all of you guys go free. Interesting. Interesting. The ten brothers, by the work of a sovereign God, have just been placed in the same situation that they had been placed in over 20 years ago. I thought about this. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? Where you find yourself in the exact same situation that you were maybe last week, maybe yesterday? Maybe a year ago, right? I've been there. I've been there. I've been there. I've been maybe entangled in a sin, and I repent, and I say, God, forgive me, and he does because he's gracious and he's good, only to find myself a week or two later maybe in the same situation because of my poor decision-making, maybe because I'm out of fellowship with the church, maybe because I'm not reading my Bible, maybe because I'm not seeking him and all that I do, but I find myself in the same situation 
than I was before. And I can tell you this because I'm quite certain that everyone here has been in that same situation, right? You're in a situation you've been in before. Now, at that point, I can tell you for my life, I got, a, I, got a, I got a choice to make. Am I going to make the same decision I made before and give in to that sin, give in to that temptation, give in to that propensity to go away from God, or will I do it differently by the grace of God this time? That's where these guys are at. The conditions are perfect for a second betrayal. The conditions are perfect. The temptation has to be so, so strong. All we got to do is leave. But it's different this time. Something interesting is going to happen. Judah is going to want to talk to Joseph privately. We've never seen this before in this story, anything like this. But we're going to see that Joseph consults his brothers. Verses 18 through 34. Joseph has really never had this kind of conversation before. Judah is now going to make a plea for Benjamin. And we are going to see that he has completely, that all the brothers have completely repented of their sin. So Judah walks up to have a conversation with Joseph. Now I want to say this real quickly. Um, This conversation that we're about to walk through is the longest conversation and the most moving conversation in the book of Genesis. I've read on it. I've studied on it. One commentator says this about what we're about to look at. There is no more moving example of repentance to be found in scripture unless you unless it be the, par- prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son. In other words, this passage of Scripture, when it comes to repentance, is only second to the prodigal son. So let's just kind of look at it. Joseph, so Judah speaks, and it's powerful. Here's what he says. Then Judas went, Judah went up to him and said, that's Joseph, and my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Now, evidently, Joseph says, come up. You can get off the ground. Come up here. I will talk to you. Now, this conversation is divided into three parts. It's long, so I'm going to kind of summarize some of it. But nonetheless, you can go back. You can read it. You can study it. But let's look at the first part. He's going to begin by giving a review of the past. A review of the past. So verses 19 through 29, basically, Judah goes up to Joseph, and he just kind of summarizes everything we've been studying, all right, from, 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 from Genesis 37 to where we're at. He reminds him, he says, hey, you, he reminds, he's bold, he's bold, he, he's bold. He says, you are the reason that a lot of this is happening, Joseph. You've lorded over us, right? You've been unfair to us. You're the one who made us go get Benjamin. You're the one who put us in jail. You're the one who've done all of these things. Twice he goes, Joseph, you have said. I want to remind you, Joseph, that we are not alone in this predicament. So he reviews the past. And after he reviews the past, he gets to verse 30, and he's going to tell him, Joseph, what the result of the punishment will be. Let's see what the result of the punishment will be. He says, Joseph, what you need to know is this. If we go back to Hebron, to Canaan, to see my father, right? And we don't have the boy with us. We don't have Benjamin with us. There will be a repercussion, and you need to know about it. And this is where we first start to see that repentance has taken place. Look, verse 30. Now, therefore, he's telling him, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, he's speaking of Jacob, 
and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants, plural, all the boys, will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to um, Sheol. Hey, hey, Joseph, know this. You do this. My father will die. And he's not being dramatic. It's true. He will die. We get there and we tell him that you kept Benjamin. My father will die. 32, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And you see it. You see it. Evidence. Evidence of repentance, taking responsibility. He's saying, Joseph, this is our sin. This is our sin. We take the blame. I confess. I'm sorry. I take, this is me. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't say it's because of this. He doesn't say, he doesn't make an excuse. He says, it's me. I did it. It's my sin. Now, we're going to pause, and this is what we got to see, church. This is what we got to see. I want you to understand this. What Joseph is doing here, it's absolutely amazing to hear this coming from the mouth of Judah. Because up until this point, Judah had been a really bad guy. You don't believe me? Let me give you some highlights. I've listed just some of the highlights of the life of Judah. He was the one who came up with the plot to sell Joseph to slavery. That makes him a bad brother. He's the one who devised the scheme to put animal blood over the coat and trick the father. And he lied to his father for 20 years. That makes him a bad son. He then goes on and marries a godless woman. He moves out of town so he can sin, does some evil things. That makes him a bad husband. He raises two sons so evil that God kills them. That makes him a bad father. He has a relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking she was a prostitute. And he's got this friend, it matters who you roll with. He's got this really bad friend who helps him out. He was a bad friend. So I kind of put this all together so we'll get this in perspective, okay? Um, To be clear, Judah was a bad guy. Judah was a bad brother. Judah was a bad son. Judah was a bad husband. Judah was a bad father. Judah was a bad friend. Judah was a bad man. So what in the world is going on now? Well, what's going on here? What's going on? What's going on? Why is Judah doing this? What? this is, there's nothing in the life of Judah that would indicate that he would act in this manner. What's going on? I'll tell you. God's going on. That's what's going on. Our God saves Our God saves. Our God saves. Judah was an evildoer. Now he's a man of righteousness. We would say it like this. We would say Judah got saved. We'd say he met Jesus. We'd say he's born again. God saves people and changes people. And I have seen it countless times. And it is my prayer that I will see it countless more times. I remember... Um, when I um, first came here as a pastor, I was blessed. I was blessed to start a Bible study on my back porch with a bunch of young men who were hostile towards God or did not know God or could care less about God. So we met on my back porch, and um, it was a tremendous thing. I would open my Bible. It was, it was, it was a weird Bible study. It wasn't really a Bible study. I'd open my, my Bible, and I'd preach for an hour. That's what happened. God saved God started saving people. There was this guy, we will call him John. 
He was a big guy. He had a checkered past. He had done a lot of things. John comes because someone invited him. John shows up. God saves John. God transformed John, all right? About a month later, here's the story, and I want you to hear this. This is so good. We're having the Bible study. It's about to start. Another person, because these are a group of men who would invite people. Another one of the men in the Bible study invited one of his friends. We'll call him Steve, all right? So John's there. Steve's coming. Steve comes around the corner of my house. Steve looks at John. John looks at Steve, and both their eyes get really big. And immediately, I know this isn't good. The tension just rose, like, out of control. And I'm like, man, this is not good. There's something going on that I'm unaware of. So what I do... And what I did was, once everyone sat down, we just prayed. And then I preached for an hour, 45 minutes, whatever. God moved, did what he was doing, and then everybody left. Well, not everybody. John didn't leave. John's sitting there. John's just sitting there. And that's the hard thing about having Bible studies at your house. Some people don't know when to leave. John, John wasn't leaving. So I go up to John, and I say, John, what's the deal? John looks at me. He goes, Travis, I want you to know something. You see that new guy, Steve? I go, yeah, I saw saw Steve. He goes, about a year ago, I had a little disagreement with him. And once again, I realized that it was more than I wanted to know about the disagreement. And I go, okay. He goes, about a year ago, Steve pulled a gun on me. And I go, wow, that's pretty heavy. John said this. John said, for the whole last year, I've been trying to find Steve because I really wanted to hurt Steve. And he said, but when I saw Steve come around that corner, the funny thing is, I no longer wanted to hurt him. I said, praise God. And then he paused, and he said something else. He said, Travis, the odd thing is, the only thing I wanted to do was to tell Steve about Jesus. I want Steve to meet Jesus. And John sat there and told me. He told me that during that whole Bible study, he was praying that God would save Steve. Who does? God does that. He's not done doing that. Not done doing that. From time to time, someone will ask, you know, they're kind of aware of that Bible study, and they'll ask, well, you know, where are those men now? I don't know where they're all at. Some of them are members of this church. Some of them are deacons in this church. But um, one of the men that were there that day God called in the ministry. He went to seminary. Now he's a senior pastor. Another man that showed up about two or three months later, not on the back porch, but in a different location. Someone invited this guy. Now he leads worship at this service every week. The point is God changes the hearts of men and women. He saves. And I really, I also don't want you to miss this. God's the one doing all this, to be sure. But I want you to realize, ever from John to Steve to all of these men, one thing that I've been thinking that they all have in common, somebody invited them to church. That's part of their story. Someone invited them. So I want to just impress upon you as a people, us as a church, do not ever apologize for telling someone about Jesus. Please do not apologize for inviting people to church. I invite people to church all the time. 90% of them don't show up, but some of them do. And some of them God saves, and all of them God uses. That's Judah. 
Judah. Now we're going to get to verse 33 and 34. And this is where it all gets wrapped up and pointed to Jesus. Judah offers a substitute. Now therefore, Judah says, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that will find my father. It's astounding. Astounding. Judah offers to be a substitute for his brother. Church, I don't want us to miss this. Like I've already said, everything points to Jesus. Judah's willingness to suffer as a substitute for his brother Benjamin is foreshadowing the substitutionary vicarious atonement of his ultimate son, Jesus the Christ. Who do we say Jesus is? He's the line of the tribe of Judah. Judah! Judah, God did this behind the scenes. He's causing all things to work out for his glory. Judah is a forefather of Jesus Christ, and now he is foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice and substitution. Judah is starting to think and act like Jesus, who will be, who is my substitute and the substitute for the world. And who's the one who's caused all this? The living God. The living God, the living God, causing all things to work out for his glory and our joy. Tremendous story. It's not done. Now the ball is in Joseph's court. How is Joseph going to respond to all of this? Well, we get to see next week. (laughs) I want to quickly go back rapidly and talk about the silver cup. And I was thinking about this, and I've been thinking about this silver cup. Throughout the Bible, God uses really strange ways to speak and get to the hearts of people. The Bible's filled with some wild stories. And every one of you could tell a wild story. I'm quite certain of how God spoke to you. Moses, there was a burning bush. Balaam, a donkey spoke. King Saul, bleating of a sheep. God and Elijah, there was a still small voice. Peter, he used a rooster The list could go on and on, but we see here that God uses whatever necessary to get our attention. And here, the Lord used a silver cup. The Lord used a silver cup to open the door to forgiveness and reconciliation. I know it's odd. I know it's odd, but it's true nonetheless. God knows how to speak to you and I. Here's the final question that I want to leave with you. As I'm speaking, as we're talking, are you, do you, or any of you, are you fearful that there might be a silver cup in your future? What I mean by that, that you have unconfessed sin. Are you playing at this thing called Christianity? Are you flirting with Jesus? Jesus, don't flirt. You can walk away for a while and be a believer and do all sorts of foolishness. But there very well might be a silver cup waiting for you as well. It may not be a silver cup, but he will get your attention. He will get your attention. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. 
John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus's final words to his disciples in the upper room. They are about to enter the darkest moment in history, and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.